the National Archives podcast series, Hearth Tax, an introduction, presented by Paul Carlyle. So today I'll be speaking to you about the hearth tax, late 17th century property tax. Uh, Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660, mostly broken with debts to pay. The hearth tax was first introduced in 1662 on hearths and fireplaces uh, and stoves within each dwelling in England and Wales. A payment of one shilling was to be made twice annually at Michaelmas, 29th of September, and on Lady Day, 25th of March. Houses worth less than 20 shillings in annual rent or contain no more than £10 worth of movable goods were exempt, as were glass-blowing houses, stamp furnaces and kilns, and hearths and stoves in hospitals and almshouses. The tax was intended as a permanent revenue, but was abolished by the newly arrived William of Orange in 1689 as a quick and easy way of obtaining popular support for his reign. And actually, a few years later, he would introduce the... Uh, the much-loved window tax uh, as well, which, unlike the hearth tax, was intended only as a, as a short-term revenue-raising uh, measure, but which survived into the early 19th century. Those are the basic facts. But the hearth tax has a, a complicated and entangled history. Um, and when I use the words complicated and tangled, I'm really employing them euphemistically because the word I really mean to use is farcical. The hearth tax was a, it was a comedy that lasted about a quarter of a century, uh, and one that certainly few people found very funny at the time. Its historical re- reputation has suffered badly. Uh, the story of the half tax is partly a story of maladministration, inefficiency, inequality, failure. And this was the view taken by Macaulay in his History of England, in which he compared the half tax unfavourably with the excise. The tax on chimneys, though less productive, called forth far louder murmurs. The discontent excited by direct imposts is indeed almost directly out of proportion to the quantity of money which they bring into the exchequer. And the tax on chimneys was, even among direct imposts, peculiarly odious, for it could be levied only by means of domiciliary visits, and of such visits the English have always been impatient to a degree which the people of other countries can but faintly conceive. The poorer households were frequently unable to pay their hearth money to the day. When this happened, their furniture was distrained or seized, uh, without mercy. For the tax was farmed, privatised, uh, and a farmer of taxes is of all creditors proverbially the most rapacious. The collectors were loudly accused of performing their unpopular duty with harshness and insolence. It was said that as soon as they appeared at the threshold of a cottage, the children began to wail, and the old women ran to hide their earthenware. Nay, the single bed of a poor family had sometimes been carried and sold. Uh, Macaulay goes on to quote from some contemporary ballads he found in the, in the Pepys Library uh, in, in Cambridge. The good old dames, whenever they the chimney man espied, unto their nooks they haste away, their popkin, pots and pipkins hide. There is not one old dame in ten, and search the nation through, but if he talk of chimney men, will spare a curse or two. And then this, like the plundering soldiers, they'd enter the door and make a distress on the goods of the poor, while frighted poor children distractedly cried. This nothing abated their insolent pride. And finally this as well, which is now, I think, in the, in the British Library. Or if through poverty it be not paid for cruelty to tear away the single bed on which the poor man rests his weary head, at once deprives him of his rest and bread. And Macaulay goes on to say that, in truth, that tax seems to have united all the worst evils that can be imputed to any tax. It was unequal and unequal in the most pernicious way, for it pressed heavily on the poor and lightly on the rich. A peasant, all whose property was not worth £20, had to pay several shillings. While the mansion of an opulent nobleman in Lincoln's Inn Fields, or St James's Square, was seldom assessed at two guineas. 
The collectors were empowered to examine the interior of every house in the realm, to disturb families at meals, to force the doors of bedrooms, and if the sum demanded were not punctually paid, to sell the trencher on which the barley loaf was divided among the poor children, and the pillow from under the head of the lying-in woman. Uh, nor could the treasury effect- effectually restrain the chimneymen from using the powers with harshness, for the tax was farmed and the government was constantly <coughs> forced to connive at outrages and exactions, such as have in every age made the name of publican a proverb for all that is most hateful. Historians tend to write about the hearth tax in more sober terms uh, these days. Uh, in these passages, Macaulay has distilled some of the, the, the more egregious characteristics of the, of the hearth tax uh, into a series of, of stock images. So the intrusive collector, who was probably also a stranger uh, later on, permitted by law to enter into people's homes, uh, aggressive, callous methods of collection, the threat to property and livelihoods, uh, the peasant paying more than or as much as the, as the wealthy nobleman. Uh, he also notes the terrible inefficiency of the tax's administration. The half tax failed to yield anything like the sums expected or demanded by the state. And there is a further gossipy suggestion in the literature, I won't let this one at, at Macaulay's door, uh, that Charles II... Uh, not known for introducing us to the idea of austerity England, was guilty of misappropriation. That money raised from the hard tax helped him to, to maintain his allure in the eyes of his seemingly innumerable mistresses and to preside over a, a decadent and, and dissolute court. Uh, in this portrait taken from the, the plea rolls, uh, Charles demonstrates how you can be both uh, regal and ever slightly loush as well. Although there, there is a reason he's showing that much leg as well, which a colleague of mine explained to me earlier today. Uh, historians have shown that this probably wasn't the case. The money went towards loans, the Navy, uh, the second of, of umpteen wars against the Dutch, uh, and so on. Uh, but this popular belief, if indeed it was popular, uh, perhaps contributed something to the widespread opposition um, provoked by the, by the tax. Uh, Macaulay managed to condense 26, 27 years worth of incidents and, and malpractice into a couple of paragraphs. The truth is, as despised as the tax was, most people put up with it, and by the time it was abolished, it had actually begun to re- return the expected sums. It was actually a success by the time they, they abolished it, or it was beginning to look like a success. And for all the discontent and inequality created or exacerbated by this tax, and for all the inefficiency of its collection, the half tax has left behind a copious amount of documentation, an abundance of records that tell us something, not everything, but, but something, about post-restoration England and Wales. And researchers have used half-tax records to explore various subjects, such as public revenue and how it was used, poverty, wealth and its patterns of distribution, population, literacy, architecture, or what's sometimes called uh, vernacular architecture, uh, how people lived in their their built environments, a relationship between local administration and the state. Uh, Some magistrates were resentful of the collector's incursion on their, their territory. And some of the records work as, a, as an index to, to certain localities. So here we have a parish in, in Southwark, which lists those who don't have to pay uh, the tax, um, but also the various alleyways, uh, courts and wharves uh, in which they live. So you'll see Horsham Court there, got a wharf up there as well. Eglin's Gate down here. And, and Southwark, Southwark in particular is, uh, is, is very good for, for that sort of thing, but so are of other counties as well. The records are, are name-rich and come back diverse in their, in their coverage. They include the names of, of women, uh, though often their surnames are recorded and, and prefixed with the word widow. Here in this assessment for the, um, the very space-age-sounding Accrington Nova, which is in Lancashire, 
you can actually see we have a widow Brocklebank just there, and there's, a, there's another couple of widows on there as well. And she's a possessor of a, of a single hearth. She's been assessed there for that single hearth. In some of the records, uh, occupations uh, are included, although this wasn't common practice. Um, in this example, we have an exemption certificate for the poor waterman of Putney, uh, whose wives, by reason their husbands are gone to sea, and others that are present to go at an hour's warning are unable to pay the chimney money without the help of others. And next to each of the names, the watermen are recorded as being either present or, or gone to sea. And in some records, men with the same name are distinguished by um, their ages. So they'll be John Smith Sr., John Smith Jr. But they won't necessarily be related, um, so that can be a little bit confusing sometimes. For those reasons, actually, that genealogists and, um, and local historians have found the assessments and returns and the certificates of exemption uh, to be very useful, if occasionally frustrating, sources. So the records held here at the National Archives cover two separate periods in the taxes administration. The first period covers the, um, the years 1662 to 1666. The second, 1669 to 1674. These were the only two periods in the taxes history in which the relevant documentation had to be returned to the quarter sessions and to central government as well, or the, the exchequer. To understand the reasons why the records survive for these periods, I will give a, a brief history of the tax and its administration, its introduction, implementation, uh, and the key changes it underwent as officials try to improve and refine their methods of assessment uh, and collection. Uh, this should also demonstrate why the records don't really have a uniform character. Um, their appearance differs from county to county, sometimes even from parish to parish. Exemption certificates look this way in 1663, or can look this way. Uh, this is an exemption certificate signed by the vicar and countersigned by the justices of the peace in favour of Thomas Charles of Haslingford in Cambridge, who had been assessed for three hearths, whereof one of them was over a beer cellar. The said fire hearth is since Michaelmas last fallen down into the said cellar and has thereby become useless. There's no word on, on casualties there either, so we can only assume that the beer was unharmed. While in 1674, they could look a bit like that. So uh, these are uh, printed certificates which become, become standard from about 1670. Um, and you start to see a lot of those around uh, between 1670 and 1674. Uh, so in April uh, 1660, Charles II was restored to the throne after a decade of, of Republican government uh, and immediately faced uh, an economic crisis. Uh, the protectorate had left behind uh, a debt of around two and a half million pounds. Charles could no longer rely on ancient sources of wealth, such as feudal tenure, which had been abolished in the first Restoration Parliament in 1660. Uh, and Crown lands had been alienated to such an extent that the, the king's revenue was severely depleted, so that by uh, 1663 it had shrunk to the value of around £100,000. And uh, it didn't have an awful lot left in the piggy bank. Charles uh, even had to flog Dunkirk <coughs> to France in 1662, uh, for something in the region of £300,000 as well. And so Parliament agreed that the king, given that feudal rights and privileges had been surrendered, needed a guaranteed annual income. And they agreed then that the king should receive 1.2 million in tax revenue. Uh, there was a growing interest during this period in consumption taxes. And we're very familiar with these today on, on booze, on cigarettes, fuel, lukewarm pasties. But they were relatively new in the mid to late 17th century. And Parliament had granted a perpetual excise on beer uh, and ale. Uh, together with further impositions granted for the, the lifetime of the, of the king. Uh, an assault duty actually was also um, proposed in, in this period. Alas, inaccurate economic forecasts and poor financial management 
are not unique to our time, and the estimated yield of these taxes was badly mistaken, which left a heavy shortfall in the proposed yearly income. And the solution was more taxes. And the Half Tax Act, having been approved by the Commons and the Lords, received royal assent in May 1662. Uh, so why halves? like a strange thing to tax. Well, halves and fireplaces and chimneys had become examples of what we'd refer to now as conspicuous consumption, not conspicuous wealth or, or aspirational. Almost you'd have, uh, they could be quite elaborate, they'd be decorated with initials or coats of arms. Uh, but there was another reason why they were targeted. Uh, Sir William Petty is the man often credited with inventing the half tax, um, or the idea at least of a tax on hearts. Petty was a, a government administrator in Ireland during the 1650s. He was a natural philosopher, founding member of the Royal Society, someone who helped develop something he called political arithmetic. It's the use of statistics and other rational empirical methods uh, in the running of government. He's a, a, sort, of, a sort of proto-technocrat in, in a way, I suppose. Um, but instead of inventor, I, I, I think it's probably more accurate to, to regard him as, a, as an energetic advocate of attacks on, on Hals. Uh, the Hals tags existed in, in France, uh, in the Netherlands, um, and so it, it wasn't unique exactly. In his, uh, his rip-roaring 1662 work, A Treatise of Taxes and Contributions, which is it's freely available online if anyone wishes to consult it, Petty argued that of all the accumulative excises, that of hearth money or smoke money seems the best, and that only because the easiest and clearest and fittest to ground a certain revenue upon, it being easy to tell the number of hearths which are removed not as heads or poles do. So in other words, hearths won't jump over the back fence when they hear the collector knocking at the door. Uh, and elsewhere, Petty refers to, to natural justice, meaning that hearths clearly reflected how wealth was distributed. So if you have a dozen or so hearths in your home, you're probably worth a few bob. You're not going to miss two shillings a year. That was the idea. And those who couldn't pay just wouldn't be able to pay. So, was it. so the tax was administered on a county-by-county county basis and went through five phases. The first is the sheriffs uh, between 1662 and 1664, sometimes referred to as the sheriff's time. We have the first receivers, 1664 to 1665, when the government appointed its own collectors. The first farm, 1666 to 1669, uh, which is in essence the, the privatisation of the, of the tax. It was the responsibility for the collection was, uh, was sold, it was given over to a consortium of uh, London businessmen. We have the second receivers uh, between 1669 and 1674, <coughs> after the disaster of the first farm, but I'll come to that later. Uh, second and third farms, um, and the commission between 1674 and 1689, it was privatised twice more um, before the appointment of a commission to actually oversee the, the collection in its final years. So unfortunately the government, surprise, surprise, overestimated the total yield of the tax and consequently it went through a number of administrative changes. So the original act made existing local officials responsible uh, for the collection of the tax under the supervision of JPs, the clerks of the peace uh, and the sheriff. Uh, and to give you some idea of the process, here is an exceedingly sophisticated diagram charting the administration of the tax in the early period. So householders were given six days uh, notice to make a written and signed return of the number of hearts stoves in their property, uh, although no instructions were given as to what illiterate households would do, how they would actually make their returns. Parish constables sent the returns to the high constables, who sent them on to the JPs at the quarter sessions. The clerk of the peace made two enrolled copies covering the whole county, one for the sheriff, and while the other had to be signed by three JPs and returned to the exchequer for use in auditing the sheriff's account. 
The original assessments submitted to the quarter sessions were usually destroyed after enrolment, but in a few cases, some examples have survived, uh, including this assessment here for Newington Hamlet um, in Surrey. And here the assessment, assessment has been reused so, uh, by the constable so that it actually serves um, as a return. And the difference between uh, an assessment uh, and a return is that uh, the assessment would establish the number of halves and the number of taxpayers, or in theory it should, while the returns would document the amounts collected. But often you find that the two double up um, across the counties. Um, and so here you can actually see the number of the number of halves as well, as well as those properties which are uninhabited. And it could be that they're, they're not just occupants, but they're also landlords as well. So you would actually have to be living in the, in the property. So a revision to the Act in 1663 insisted that the assessments include the exempt or non-chargeable. Uh, here we have an assessment from Lady Day, 1664, of chargeable and non-chargeable halves in the Leyland 100 uh, in Lancashire. And the Hearts Act was revised and amended with, with tedious regularity. In 1664, a further change brought about the appointment of government-appointed receivers to oversee the administration of the tax. This was an attempt at improving the assessments rather than the collection. So rather than making the, the actual method of collecting the money more efficient, they just thought that people weren't being listed, listed properly. The government even printed some new instructions so that everyone would know what they were supposed to be doing. So self-assessment by the occupiers of homes was replaced by collection um, by the receiver's officers, who were known as chimney men. And in the, the, the genealogy of unpopular public officials, uh, chimney men are distantly related to, to traffic wardens and, and, and other such figures. Uh, they were utterly despised in their time. And they would collect the money from each house and could distrain or, or seize a person's goods uh, if that person didn't cough up within an hour. And if you remember Macaulay's image of the man having his bed taken from, from underneath it. So chimney men were permitted to search every house once a year to see whether it had more or fewer halves than before. The 1664 Act also prevented landlords from evading the tax by craftily dividing a house into tenements and then letting it to poor tenants. Uh, anyone with more than two halves was liable, even if they were otherwise entitled to exemption. And most exempt individuals had one or two halves. Many of those forced to pay the tax also had only one or two halves as well. So it was often thought there was a basic inequality in the way that these things were, were assessed. And despite all these changes, the tax, tax still didn't bring in the expected revenue. The receivers replaced in the spring of 1666 the government was once again short of money, and there was the minor problem of yet another war with the Dutch. And that's the second of four, if anyone's keeping count. Uh, it decided to farm the tax out to a City of London consortium for an advance of £250,000. The receivers were replaced by farmers who administered London directly, while sub-farmers were responsible for other regions. And they established a, a hearth office um, in the city. That's uh, Rodmorton Street, I think. And the farm was supposed to last seven years, but only lasted three Plague, widespread, sometimes violent opposition, and the Great Fire really did for the consortium. <coughs> Here we have an assessment which includes uh, Pudding Lane, actually. There we go, Pudding Lane. Very likely the, um, the oven that set the city ablaze in 1666 as well. And this was actually just a few days before the, uh, before the fire in, uh, in Pudding Lane. So the government decided it would return to its pre-farm methods, and it brought the receivers back. So between 1669 and 1674... The tax was administered by receivers with a staff of sub-collectors and their old friends, the, uh, the petty constables, all under the supervision of a small central office known as the um, agents for the hearth tax. The receivers sent the assessments to be enrolled by the clerks of the peace, 
parish officials and JPs dealt with exemption certificates. There was an improvement in the overall yield, but the tax was farmed out yet again for five years from 1674. This was a much more successful farm. So successful, in fact, that the government was concerned that the farmers were making too much money this time. And the farm was not renewed in 1684, and a commission was set up which dealt with excise and half money. So why did the government have so many difficulties with the administration of the tax? Well, to begin with, there was resistance from households and tenants who simply couldn't pay, they, they just didn't have the money. In Southwark, it was claimed that those who were unable to pay outnumbered those who could buy more than a 1,000. The tax, it was said, was heavier than any other tax, falling mostly on such as through inability, never contributed to former taxes, and that most of the 16 out-parishes of London are in the same case. In Cumberland, there were those who, through impoverishment, could not pay the half tax. They didn't even have anything that could be seized in place of the money. In the winter of 1666, and so this is once the, the farm, the, the privatisation of the tax had, had taken place, the Privy Council established a special committee to help deal with the unrest provoked by the first farm and the large number of drubbings being dished out to the farmers, whose allegedly rough methods of collection had caused a great deal of upset. There are riots and disturbances in Hereford, of high affronts and dangerous assaults in Huntingdon. Uh, in Marlborough, uh, John Elliot threatens uh, to throw a collector down a trapdoor. In Northumberland, the residents accused of rude and uncivil actings and of abusing and threatening to beat up the collectors and the constables. In the North Riding, uh, Mr Wharton, taking notice of the coming of Richard Prickard, one of the collectors, got the country together in great multitudes and commanded the constable to fetch the said collector. The people declared the collector a cheat, not fit to be trusted with the king's money. A perjured fellow, for they had in one house returned two chimneys where there was but one. The rude multitude fell upon the said collector with railing and reviling speeches and forced him to leave his business with the safety of his life. A sub-farmer in Norfolk claimed he and his 34 men assessed the county, sometimes at hazard of our lives. And then there was John Lovelace, Lord Lieutenant of Berkshire, who would later retrieve a, a degree of fame as a, as a staunch Whig. Uh, he was summoned to appear before the Privy Council after he was alleged to have been given a good hiding to a collector, an incident later referred to by the poet and MP Andrew Marvell in his uh, satirical last instructions to a painter. Uh, magistrates were often resentful of intrusions by outside collectors, particularly the farmers, and so didn't do an awful lot to, to help collectors, so they did the farmers when they were doing their rounds. The Privy Council were forced to press disaffected JPs into applying the law in their jurisdictions. There were complaints by government officials that money wasn't being transported efficiently or even honestly. This entry from the calendar of Treasury books shows that the Treasury was suspicious about the sluggish delivery of arrears from North Wales, describing it as mischievous, as it was done by drovers who take six months to arrive with the money. Uh, these calendars, incidentally, which are available um, on the shelves here, um, on this floor in the library and upstairs in the, in the map room, uh, a particularly excellent source for anyone interested in how Treasury officials actually dealt with the problems created by the, uh, by the hearth tax. Um, obstruction took other forms too. One group has proved particularly adept throughout history at tax avoidance, the rich. We've got the governor of Windsor Castle, who received a telling off for refusing to make returns or admit the officers. And similarly, officials at the, at the Tower of London were also told off for something very similar. In Blackburn, the jewel of East Lancashire, it was reported that up to 850 hearths had been walled up. They'd actually been blocked. <coughs> They'd been just stuffed so they couldn't be assessed. <coughs> a, little about, a little bit like what people say about windows, following the window tax, when windows were actually blocked up as well. And an often high number of exemptions were approved by the overseers of the poor, church wardens and the ministers, 
and the government regarded the whole process as lax. In Wargrave in Berkshire, we have a vicar who in 1672 is possibly new in town. John Brandon writes of his exempted parishioners, being little acquainted with any of them, can certify of this no otherwise than according to his parishioners' information. So they, they told him they can't pay. He believes them. A year later, he's still taking their word for it. Uh, and in 1674, he continues with his hands-off approach to the exemption process. And even later on, just a couple of years before the tax is put out of its misery, Thomas Swadden, uh, a Wiltshire man, was found guilty at the Western Assizes of making a, a false certificate concerning four houses. He stood in the pillory in three different places and was ordered to pay a huge fine of £1,000. Uh, to put that into context, the nobleman's annual income uh, in this period would have been somewhere between two and £400, so it's quite a considerable sum that he's being fined there. So the, the poor were angry and persecuted. The rich did their best to avoid paying. Local officials were often idle and lacked incentives. Farmers were aggressive in their methods. Magistrates were disaffected. Clergymen were too soft. And then there's all the usual stuff, plague, fire, war. But apart from that... Uh, but as I said at the beginning, the records of the half-tax left behind are substantial. So we have the assessments and returns, uh, some examples of which we've seen already. Uh, these, are, these are the main, um, the main records, really, along with the um, exemption certificates as well, some of which we've, we've also seen. Uh, there's the schedules of arrears. It's basically lists of those who were unable to pay or, or just didn't pay on time. Um, and declared accounts and, and auditors miscellaneous, which uh, I suppose if you take them together with the calendar of treasury books, uh, would tell you something a bit more detailed about the actual administration of the, of the tax. And don't forget yet yeah, the calendars of treasury books, which I've already mentioned. The, the Privy Council registers also, um, especially given the, the committee that was established to, to try and quell some of the unrest. Uh, and the state papers, of course, which is always useful for, for anything in, in the early modern period, but also in the, in the late 17th century. So the lists that make up the assessments and returns were made for each county in England and Wales and arranged according to administrative unit. So we begin with the, with the parish at the sort of lowest level. Uh, then the hundred, and finally the, the county. Um, and this, this, is, this is a simplification, really, um, because you do find variations on this, this particular theme. You'll find, for example, um, that parishes, the, s the smallest unit here, and as we saw with the example from, from Southwark earlier, are actually divided into districts, wards, tithings, um, or streets even. So uh, it's, it's important to be aware of this administrative arrangement, because when it comes to searching for half tax records, you'll be searching by area. Um, that could be parish, hundred or, or county um, not by the names of those listed um, in the assessments, returns or exemption certificates so under each place they show the names of taxpayers um, who as I mentioned earlier wouldn't necessarily be the occupants um, but perhaps just the landlord uh, and the number of hards they begin with a manuscript preamble setting out in basic terms what the lists are and how they relate to the provisions of the Half Tax Act and we found the same sort of thing for exemption certificates too Sometimes the lists uh, are entered on long pieces of parchment, as we saw earlier with our Blackburn example, uh, and at other times they're entered into smaller paper books. And you might remember that earlier I discussed the process by which the records ended up at the Exchequer um, in the years 1662 to 1666 and 1669 to 1674. Um, the assessments and returns held here at the National Archives are duplicates. So two copies of each county list was enrolled at the quarter sessions, with one copy to be retained locally and the other to be sent to the Exchequer. 
County record offices, therefore, often have substantial holdings of half-tax records. Uh, you may even find that the records that haven't survived here have survived in the local record office. Or it could be that there is an improvement on the copy that we have here. Uh, survival rates and overall coverage differs from county to county. Warwickshire, for example, uh, would appear to be the most complete set of records. There are eight full lists for, for Warwickshire. Um, but there are other counties whose records are nowhere near as, as comprehensive in that period. Uh, we've also seen today a, a distinct lack of uniformity in the records. Early collections record only the names of those who had uh, to pay the tax and then those who, who didn't, and not those who didn't, sorry, in the early period. Revisions to the half tank meant that within a year the records looked quite different. Um, and when the receivers took over again in 1669 to 1670, uh, you find the lists can also look different again from county to county. Exemption certificates can be paper or parchment. Some are in manuscript. Some have printed preambles followed by handwritten lists of names. Uh, some are printed and conjoined, such as those for Surrey. And Surrey is an, an interesting case, actually, because it introduced printed certificates earlier than any other county. They had them as early as 1665, uh, for some reason. In the earlier period, you're likely to come across a number of certificates for individuals and not just whole parishes. So if you remember at the, at the beginning, the man whose hearth had fallen into the, uh, the beer cellar, that's a, an individual certificate, an individual exemption certificate from, from that period. And you see many of those throughout the, that early period of the tax. For the period 1670 to 1674, as I mentioned earlier, the certificates were standardised, uh, but you still find that they come in all shapes and sizes. So if officials had run out of printed certificates, they would write out the preamble by hand, <coughs> followed by the names. Exemption certificates recall the names of those who didn't have to pay the tax for reasons of poverty. They recall the names of the church wardens, the overseers of the poor, the ministers, or the vicar or the, or the rector. And they can sometimes help fill in the gaps in the assessments and returns. Because in some communities, the exempt as we saw with, with Southwark earlier on, actually outnumber those who were chargeable. Uh, it's also probable that given how poorly written some of the instructions to collectors were, uh, the list of exempt individuals uh, should not be regarded as complete. And sometimes it's the case that individuals are charged one year and then exempt later on. Again, our, our man with the beer cellar, um, he was chargeable one year, non-chargeable the next. The desperately poor, those who received poor relief, were often missed off the lists altogether. Um, and just a brief note on the, uh, the language and, and handwriting. The records are almost entirely um, in English. 100 de Blackburn or 100 de Leyland is about as difficult or challenging as the, as the Latin gets, so there's no need to, to worry on that score. Uh, and the hands, uh, though diverse, are often very easy to understand. So even you know, when there's days when you, your paleography eyes aren't working and everything looks like it's in Klingon, you, know, you shouldn't have any difficulties with these records. This should be fine. We are currently cataloguing the exemption certificates for Surrey and Sussex, with Staffordshire and Dorset to come. In recent years, work has been completed on Berkshire, Hertfordshire, Warwickshire, Essex, Norfolk, Suffolk, uh, and many more besides. These records have had to be resorted, rehoused, fully listed, and are now more accessible uh, than they have been previously. Um, and this is largely down to the hard work and dedication of my, uh, my colleague Peter Seaman, who's been working on these records on and off since the early 1980s. Um, and who's been heavily involved in the transcription and publication um, by the British Record Society of various half-tax records, including his own personal favourite, the exemption certificates for Norfolk. Half-tax records do not come, they do not only come in a variety of shapes and sizes, they're often in uh, various states of, of disrepair too. Um, this is entirely down to the conditions in which the records were kept throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. In 1800, they were stored in chests in rooms at the Palace of Westminster, in 1822, the records were moved to, uh, and I quote, 
a dark, damp and almost pestilential shed inside Westminster Hall. Apparently large amounts of parchment were pilfered and sold to glue manufacturers. In 1831, the records were moved yet again, this time to the great stables of the old Royal Mews at Charing Cross. There they became damp, some were damaged beyond repair, while others were stuck to the side of large bins into which they had been placed, or presumably dumped. Uh, in 1835, the records were moved to Carlton Ride, the former stables of Carlton House in Pall Mall. A dog searched the bins for rats in their dwellings. Seven mummified rats and a dead cat were found amongst the records. Uh, and those haven't been accessioned, as far as I'm aware. Uh, it took three labourers three weeks to transfer the records from the bins into sacks, sustained by strong stimulants, to overcome the putrid filth, stench, dirt and decomposition. And about 500 sacks were filled with records. Uh, and by 1837, the process of identifying and sorting the records began, and eventually, eventually, they found their way into the public record office. And we're still living with the consequences of the records having been stored in, in those conditions, as later this year we will attempt to catalogue the exemption certificates for Staffordshire, um, and in their current state, they are completely inaccessible. Um, they're, they're rolled up, they're water damaged. Um, I think they have been eaten by rats, or at least parts of them have. Um, they're extremely brittle, and, and when you pick them up, bits are just falling off them. So um, that's quite a big job that's coming up this year. And, and there are other records as well in a, in a similarly parlous state as well. So how do you find and access the records? Well, I'll end with some advice on how you go about that. As the, the principal means of identifying the records held here at the National Archives is our taxation database, also known as the E179 database. Um, E179 is the reference code uh, for what is a, a very large collection of taxation records. Uh, it includes not only the half tax, but seemingly every single type of tax you can think of from the 13th century up to the 17th. Uh, and I would usually advise anyone searching for half tax records uh, to begin with the database, um, simply because that's where you'll find the most detailed information. Uh, on the records, including their geographical composition as well. Uh, you won't necessarily find that same information using our online catalogue, otherwise known as, as Discovery, although it is possible to use this resource effectively as well um, to search for half-tax records. Uh, and to make things a little bit more interesting, I'm actually going to do a live demonstration of both those things in a moment. But before I do so, uh, I will mention one or two other things. The very useful Gibson Guide which some of you may be familiar with. It's available on the, on the shelves here. It's behind the, um, the map room desk upstairs. It's also behind the inquiry, um, the red desk, the inquiry desk at the, at the end of the room here as well. It's particularly good because it shows what records have survived for different periods across the counties as well as where they are kept. So it's very good for identifying things that are held here, but also in county record offices as well. Uh, and prior to the year 2000, 17 counties had actually published returns uh, transcripts of the returns. If you compare to browse the, the local history section of the library here, um, you'll find that uh, there's a number of, a number of these. Uh, the British Records Society is publishing a return for any county uh, not already covered. Thus far, we've seen the publication of Cambridgeshire, Kent, we've got the exemption certificates for Norfolk, amongst others. Most recently published um, is Essex. The general introduction to these volumes um, is, is excellent and usually very informed about the areas which it's covering. So it's always worth having a look at those. Uh, and the Centre for Half Tax Studies, which is based at the University of Roehampton, has a website which includes a number of transcripts, um, as well as bibliographies and other useful half tax related information. So if you're looking for a particular um, assessment uh, for a particular county in a particular year, uh, chances are it could be actually on there. So it's probably worth having a, having a look. Okay, then, so here we go with the live demonstration. I haven't actually practiced this, so I don't actually know if it's going to work. Uh, so if you were to do it today, the place to go first of all would be catalogues and online records. 
And in the left-hand column here, long list, towards the bottom you should find taxation records. Click on search E179. And I'm going to try and find the, one of the examples actually in the, in the slides, which was the Blackburn 100. So we've got Blackburn there. And look up. So it gives you the option there. You've got the 100, the parish, the deanery. Uh, in this instance, we're looking for the, for the 100, so I'm going to click on there. And then we can search by years and or tax type. <coughs> I'm going to click on there, SFI. And from this, uh, this drop-down list here, uh, you can actually select half tax there. And that would bring up, um, it should bring up in theory, exemptions and assessments and returns, anything relevant to the, to the half tax. So I won't limit it to uh, any particular years, because they only cover certain years anyway. And I'll go click on all documents as well, so I'll click for anything, search the database. And you see it comes up with a, a number of results there, we've got 13 results. And um, the actual um, collection that I was looking for there, the assessment, this one here, E179, 250, 11. Parts one to, to whatever, there's quite a, a number of different parts to that particular collection there. And if you click on the details, so this tells you that um, it gives you some, some relatively detailed notes. These, these can be detailed from, from uh, piece to piece, um, but it's always worth looking at these because they, they are very accurate and usually very informative. And it also gives you the, the geographical composition down here as well, so how it's actually arranged in the record itself. Rot here means uh, rotulate, um, I suppose the equivalent, you could just say page number or, or something like that. It's not strictly speaking a page number, but it's, you sort of take that as, as, the, as the equivalent. Okay. And on here you've got notes as well, which tells you actually a bit more about the actual uh, tax itself as well. So it gives you a bit more background, a bit more context. Um, and if you were to access that from home, if you really want to access that from home, you click on records here on the home page, followed by catalogues and online records just underneath. And uh, you've got it on the list here, just towards the, uh, the bottom. And if you were to use the, the online catalogue, if you're looking for exemption certificates, for example, using Discovery, um, then you can do that as well. The thing to do there is I would click on Advanced Search. I don't think you necessarily have to do that. That's just what I do. But click on there. In all these words, you could put in, uh, I put in Berkshire with the word AND in capital letters, followed by exemption. And then a little further down, you can actually search within the, the relevant collection, in, in which case, in, in this instance, it's E179. So I can put E179 in there and then search. You can see the first result that comes up is the exemption certificates for Berkshire. There's 211 items in there. If you click on there, you see information. You've got 203 certificates, paper marker, etc. And if you click on browse by reference, you'll see here you've got the, uh, the piece here for Berkshire. But then on the right hand side, yeah, the actual individual items from that particular. So each individual certificate uh, within Berkshire, and you can actually click on there, and you can just uh, you can scroll through those. And it gives you the number. It gives you the the hundred, the parish. Uh, we mentioned before that, that that administrative structure, and also the um, number of names. And occasionally, as well, if the number of hards are recorded, you'll also find that in the uh, in the catalogue descriptions as well. And this finally is the um, Hartax Online, so the Centre for Hartax uh, Research at the University of Roehampton. And you see on the right-hand side here, you've got the name of various lists that you can download. So Kent for 1664, uh, Lancashire's on its way by the looks of things, Westmoreland, Worcestershire, and so on. And there's lots of other uh, useful information in there as well if you were looking to take it further. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 21st of March 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.